We are in Exodus 20 as we are working our way through the Ten Commandments. We don't do this all the time, but through this series, we have been reading together in unison uh, as we walk through each of these commands. And so today it is the fourth commandment. It is the longest of the commandments. So we'll read just this commandment. It is Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. You see it up there on the screen. So if you would read it together with me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days... Theologian J.I. Packer may have said it best with reference to the fourth commandment when he wrote, the fourth commandment raises questions. Indeed it does. Questions sometimes are as simple as, does this mean I can't? And then fill in the blank with something due on a Sunday. Am I somehow restricted? Are there certain things that I should or should not do? Before we get to those kinds of questions, really we need to understand what the fourth commandment meant when it was first given. Here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, starts with four, and it says four in six days. And so it references the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And so it's saying with that word four, it's saying this command to remember, to keep, to obey the Sabbath now rests on this creation account back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. For in six days God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day and blessed that day and made it holy. So in light of that, many scholars will draw the conclusion that God mandated the Sabbath at creation, that this is not the initial mandate, that it actually goes back to creation. But the creation account doesn't specifically say that. I want to look at Genesis chapter 2, which is where this is drawn from. The first three verses of Genesis 2, after God has completed the work of creation, Genesis 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I would suggest to you that if we were to read that apart from any knowledge of the fourth commandment, which came about 2,000, 2,500 years later, if we were to just read that, we would not see necessarily a command for mankind. We would see a description of what the God of creation did. There's not so much a Sabbath mandate here as there is a description of God resting. Now, when it says he rested, it uses a verb that is a form of the Hebrew word for Sabbath, but it, it simply has the meaning of to cease from something, to rest from doing something, to come to completion of some activity. And so in this context, it is saying God ceased from his work of creation. He did not stop working altogether because God continues to uphold and sustain the universe. It is by his power that we live and breathe and experience life because he is sustaining it all. But his work in creation is done. It is as if he is celebrating the completion of creation. There's clearly significance here in that it says that God blessed the day and he set it apart. He sanctified it. He declared it to be holy. And so there is 
something God wants us to see in his completion of creation and be reminded of regularly, but it's not being emphasized here in the form of a command for mankind. If this was all you had until the fourth commandment comes in Exodus chapter 20, I would suggest that you would not see in this a mandate necessarily for Adam. God will give clear mandates, clear instruction when he comes to the Sabbath, and we'll see that in just a moment. But in the interim at this point, it is to show us that God at the completion of his creation rested from his creation work. And he wants us to see that as well and to to celebrate the work that he has done in his creation. He did not declare at that point in Genesis that Adam follow this pattern. This is a, a description of completion, a divine ceasing, and God continues to uphold and sustain. There are good and sound biblical scholars who will differ here, and some will say there is a, a mandate for the Sabbath that comes here at creation that applies to all of mankind, and therefore it is timeless. With all due respect to that, I'm going to say that I I don't see that command as explicit in the text, and I'll show you as we walk through some of this and on into the New Testament. The Sabbath command that we see in Exodus chapter 20 was indeed patterned after what God did. That's clear. We read that in in Exodus 20, that, that God points back to his work in creation as a pattern for it, but it was not commanded there. It's first commanded in Exodus 16. It's the Israelites, and they are wandering in the wilderness, and you'll remember the stories. This is when they are grumbling about food, and God graciously supplies manna. And so in the morning, they come out, and there is this flaky substance that they are able to bake with, to to make breads and things with, and so they are gathering that each morning, and it's in the instructions about manna that God first speaks of this thing called the Sabbath. He says in Exodus 16, 23, Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, a holy ceasing or resting to the Lord. Then it says, six days you shall gather manna, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. A few verses later, Moses said that the seventh day was a Sabbath to the Lord that he gave to his people. So here at this point in Exodus 16, first time we get a reference to something known as a Sabbath, as a specific identified period of rest for God's people that is not only described, but is mandated for them. You must observe this Sabbath. This doesn't point back to the creation account yet, as Exodus 20 does, but think about it in its context. This is is a, a, a nation of people who have just come out of slavery, They have been in captivity, and God is saying to them, tomorrow you will rest. Tomorrow you will not gather food. I will provide sufficiently today for tomorrow, and you will rest. We lose the importance of it if we don't see that in the perspective of here are people who have not experienced a master who has said, I want you to rest They have been in Egypt under bondage. They have worked and worked. And God, who has now delivered them, has said, here is the fruit of that deliverance. Tomorrow you will rest. This is a gracious act of God. As Harold Dressler puts it, the giving of the Sabbath law was not meant to be a burden. I want to give you three purposes of the Sabbath as it was originally given. And one of them is just this perpetual reminder of deliverance. By establishing this seven-day cycle, six days of work and one day of rest, God is giving his people something that will continue to remind them this rest 
of his deliverance of them. And in fact, he specifies that in Deuteronomy as Moses is restating the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and he elaborates on the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy 5.15, Moses says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. I've highlighted the therefore there because he's saying, saying things that we know are obvious. You, you need to remember you were a slave. God rescued you. But he says, therefore, keep the Sabbath. And what he's saying to them is this, this seventh day rest is to be for you a perpetual reminder of your deliverance. Every time you rest, you are to stop and think, God rescued me from slavery. God delivered us from that. And so each Sabbath was to be a memorial celebration of how God redeemed his people. Secondly, the Sabbath as it was given was also a picture of God's design. It's a pattern, much as Exodus 20 points us back to Genesis 2 and says that there is a pattern in God resting or ceasing from his work of creation. Now, with Exodus 16 and the manna and Exodus 20 and the fourth commandment, he's now saying, this is for you. This is for you to follow. This is now a, a, a mandate for you, and he's teaching it to his people. As God did after completing creation, so you too must cease from your work and rest on the seventh day. The Israelites were to do no work on the Sabbath. We read the, the verses. The servants were not to work. The animals were not to work. There was to be no work. Everything was to be stopped for that day. It was a ceasing from that particular activity following after the pattern of Genesis 2. Turn to Exodus 31, if you would, for just a moment. A little more elaboration. There's several places in the Old Testament that elaborate on the, on the fourth commandment. Exodus 31 is another. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Read almost through the end of the chapter. Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify or set you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. According to the Lord, the Sabbath had a very specific function for a very specific people at this point in time. God redeemed the Israelites we know this. He saves them first. He rescues them out of Egypt. Then he gives them his law so that they can now live out what it means to be a redeemed, delivered people. And in the giving of the law, he establishes a covenant with them through Moses. God delivers. Then he instructs on, on how to live. So the law follows the redemption at that point. And one of the ways that the Israelites demonstrate show off, picture their allegiance to the covenant is by keeping the Sabbath. And so it is a covenant mark of a distinction. That's another purpose of this. A third purpose is it, that it serves as a covenant mark of distinction. 
Verse 17 of what we just read said, this will be a sign. This is a sign of the covenant that he spoke of in verse 16. Verse 13 says it is a sign of how God set Israel apart. That The Sabbath serves this particular function so that in the midst of all of the nations, when that day of the week is treated like any other day and activity is going on for all of those nations and they are harvesting and they are trading and they are acting like nothing is different, the Israelites are to be a peculiar people called out by God who set this day apart and do not work on it. It is to be a mark of their covenant, a visible picture of the people's commitment to the covenant. Despite the rest of the world around them working, they are to cease from that work as a display of their obedience to their God, the one who delivered them, keeping that covenant. And so starting with the instructions about manna, the Sabbath is given as a sign of Israel's covenant with God through Moses. So three purposes of the Sabbath as it was given by God to the Israelites, a perpetual reminder of their deliverance, a picture of God's design, and then a covenant mark or sign of distinction, deliverance, design, and distinction. In practice, the the Sabbath command was in part an exhortation, an exhortation to enter into rest, to meditate on God's deliverance and to display God's covenant to the people. That's the the positive exhortation. As you obey God, these things will happen. But it was all wrapped up in a prohibition, which was do not work. You must cease from labor on that day. And the seriousness of the command clearly is shown, as we've read already, when the penalty that goes with it is death. Here is a, a nation, a people, that live in an agricultural community. And so to forbid them from planting, from harvesting, from fertilizing, from trading on that day, ensured that the the, the application of this command was broad. They were to cease from work on that day. The marketplace was to be silent. The Mosaic Law builds on this in Exodus 35. Let me read verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 35. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Another remarkably clear statement about the seriousness of the command, and yet... We know that despite the threat of penalty, as with all of God's commands, there is the struggle to obey. And so we see repeatedly through the Old Testament that one of the areas where Israel constantly violates God's law is by being just like the other nations around them and carrying on business on the Sabbath. To the point that the Jewish people are exiled to Babylon as punishment. One of the reasons for that is the, the way they have treated the Sabbath. They are being brought back under Nehemiah to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is now looking at his people in their city, and he is seeing business being transacted again on the Sabbath. And so in Nehemiah 13, he says, I confronted the nobles of Judah. And I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us, the exile to Babylon, and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So here is Nehemiah saying, wait a minute. 
We've done this before. We were sent into exile for doing just this. And so Nehemiah then has the city gates of Jerusalem locked and put under guard on the Sabbath. He has the priests stand guard. So there will certainly be no trading with other cities on that day. There will be no going outside of the gates of the city because of the seriousness of the command. The problem, though, as we see when we get to the life of Jesus Christ, the problem then becomes what the Jewish leaders then do with the command like that. Because you now have a prohibition that is very sort of physical, easy to judge whether or not somebody is obeying it or disobeying it. You can just sort of forget about the heart and say, oh, look, you are breaking the commandment and it's obvious. And so what the Jewish religious, religious leaders did over the centuries is they took Sabbath observance and they began to just overwhelm it with rules and adding different laws to it to interpret it. So you could do this, you couldn't do that. Mostly it was you, you, you can't. These are things you cannot do. And that all stems from the, the Jewish reading of Deuteronomy 5.33, which says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. The Hebrew word for walk is halach, and we get the halakha, the, the Jewish rule book, if you will, that, that essentially takes God's commandments and, and now adds all of man's instructions to those commands. Not simply a commentary, but it is now by these rules, you will be judged as to whether or not you are keeping the fourth commandment. This is, this is what man does in his quest for legalism is he looks for tangible ways to, to judge and, and, and see everything in a black and white way. And so that translates over to even in our day and age where modern Orthodox Jews um, don't turn on lights, don't ride in cars, don't use phones, all of the things that have been taken from the halakha and, and this, this sort of mindset of putting rules around it. Doesn't take long to see some of the dilemmas that that creates when you begin to import man-made rules on top of God's commandment, when you begin to go beyond the heart and just sort of add features to it to, to restrict people. And in fact, there's an account from the second century BC, one Jewish record describes how a thousand Jews were slaughtered on the Sabbath because they refused to fight because they had been convinced that this was not in the rules, they couldn't do that, and, and so a whole city is wiped out. That, that sort of halakha mindset is what we see playing out in the Gospels as Jesus is encountering the religious leaders and miraculously healing people on the Sabbath and being confronted for it because it appears to them to be some form of work. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 2, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 2. And this is Jesus and his disciples. It is a Sabbath, and this is one of those encounters that they have with the religious leaders. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Mark 2, 23 says, One Sabbath, Jesus, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the, pilot, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Get the, get the scene here. Jesus and the disciples appear to be enjoying the Sabbath, walking through a field. There's no description here of them intent on necessarily traveling from one place to another. They are simply walking in a grain field, and as they do, the disciples are plucking heads of grain, and they are eating them, and the Pharisees see this, 
And being the, the rule keepers that they are and the legalists that they are, they immediately stop Jesus and say, how can you let your disciples break the law by harvesting food and preparing a meal as they are doing, as they are grinding away the, the grist from off the, the, the wheat? How, how can you let them break the Sabbath in this way? All right, let's read on here. Verse 24, uh, verse 25. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Here's Jesus, responds from, with a story from 1 Samuel of David in hunger, taking food that is the set-apart bread and using it to feed others, and Jesus' point is, David was not condemned for that. There is no statement in 1 Samuel that David did wrong in God's eyes, that David disobeyed. He was not breaking the Sabbath. There, there was a need for food at that moment, and even that food that was distinctively set apart, he said, was okay. This is not a, a breaking of the commands. And the, the point Jesus is making is his disciples have done nothing wrong in this context. And so, verse 27 Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. His point to the Pharisees is you, you have taken what is a gift. You have taken what God has graciously given as this day of rest, and you have turned it into this legal doctrine that you are using to measure people as you see them as being right or wrong, righteous or not righteous, as measuring up to your standards of what this is. You've taken something that God has generously done and used it as a measuring stick to determine guilt or innocence. And he condemns this for this and, and then goes on to say, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That is a profound statement by Jesus of his own deity at that moment to say that I am master over this. this. This Sabbath that you think you control by virtue of your book of rules actually belongs to me. I am Lord over the Sabbath. We know that Jesus was not only Lord over the Sabbath, but that he transformed it. And it's after the resurrection of Jesus that we begin to see that from the New Testament writers as they address the Sabbath. There's only a couple of places in the New Testament that they mention this celebration of days. The New Testament is replete with statements that affirm the validity of the Ten Commandments with the exception of the Fourth Commandment. I, I put an insert in your, in your notes there that just are some of the references that show the New Testament affirming that God is supreme over all, the First Commandment, that you are to shun idols, the Second Commandment, that you are to revere the name of God, that children are to obey parents, which, by the way, is next Sunday, parents, we get to get to the Fifth Commandment, the one that you've been looking forward to, right? All of these are reaffirmed except for the fourth commandment. There's not a specific statement that says this is now required on you or that this has now been transformed in some way. Instead, what we get is two references in particular in the New Testament. One is in Colossians chapter two. Let me read you verses 16 and 17. Therefore, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That passage falls in the midst of him having declared that Jesus Christ canceled the debt that stood against us. He talks about in Colossians 2. Colossians 2 is all about how the law condemns us, makes us guilty, but Christ has come to remove that condemnation by dying on the cross and taking our sin in his place and suffering in our place. And at the conclusion of it, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In one fell swoop, Paul references when he says festival, he's talking about the annual feasts. When he says new moon, he's talking about monthly gatherings, monthly festivals. And when he says Sabbaths there, when he's talking about the at the end of, of verse 16, or a Sabbath, it is the weekly festival, the weekly Sabbath. And he takes them all and puts them together with the ceremonial food and dietary laws that were so much a part of the Mosaic law. And he says all are Shadows that point to the substance that is Christ. All were pointing you to say, we need a savior. There is something that is, that is there is a rest that is even better than this rest. This rest is just looking forward to something. There is a, a Passover that is better. There is a, 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 a sacrifice that is better. The Sabbath and many of the other Old Testament uh, activities, the, the activities prescribed in the Old Testament law are all directing worshipers to their need for Christ. And that's what he says here. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you on these things. These are, these are shadows that point to Christ that cause us to see the need for Jesus. You and I know that we, can, we cannot attain righteousness by virtue of our, our works. We, we cannot earn God's favor by church attendance, by offering giving, by whatever activity it is, we can only rest in Christ. None of those things will do away with our sin, will remove the wrath of God. And that's why Jesus Christ came. That's what we, we just did in remembering, in, in communion, we remembered his death and resurrection and what it accomplishes for us. And so the celebration of the Sabbath was a sign, as we've seen, of the, the old covenant and of Jewish observance of the law but it is pointing forward. The, the constant defilement of the Sabbath is just a constant reminder of the need for a new covenant when God will put his spirit in his people, enabling now our obedience and our worship of him that comes with the new covenant that is in Christ. There's that passage in Colossians. Let me read also Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Romans 14 is, is one of these passages that we talk about the, the topic of, of Christian liberty, of, of Paul dealing with the tension between some saying, nope, there, there's certain rules we've got to obey, and others saying, no, we have freedom in Christ. If you ever need the, the, the verse to point to to help your kids when you want to say to them, if in doubt, don't, Romans 14, 23 is that verse because it says, if you're doing something and you're not 
convicted and you're thinking that it's, it, this might be sin, I'm not sure if it's sin, and I'm doing this sort of not really faithfully believing, but I'm going to go ahead and do it, then it, to you it is sin. His, his point there is if, if I'm going to do something, and in the back of my mind I'm tempted to think, this could be sinful, I'm not sure if Scripture would speak to this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, then you are presuming on the grace of God at that point, and he says, then you are sinning. You're treating God's grace cheaply. So when you do something, do it out of conviction. Whether it be a preference or not, do it out of a conviction that is rooted in your understanding of the truth. And so what he says here is, this, this one esteems a day, the other esteems no days. Each one should do so on the basis of conviction, and neither should judge the other. This is not a, a binding requirement here now when we talk about the Sabbath. This is, the, these passages help us to see that, that Jesus Christ, at his death and resurrection, transforms the Sabbath. And so where we go from the one who kindles a fire shall be put to death and his soul cut off, we now see one esteems one day, one esteems no days. And so there is a, a change that goes on from Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That does not mean that there are not principles that underlie the fourth commandment that we should sort of jettison in all of this. And that's what I wanna just do by way of application for these last few minutes, is there are three principles, I think, that underlie the fourth commandment that still have a timeless basis to them. And I think one of them is evident here in Romans 14. When he says in Romans 14, six, that the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. There's still an observation of a day, he says here, and that one who observes is doing so in, in honor of the Lord. For us as believers in Jesus Christ, we do come together on a particular day of the week because we are following the pattern that we see in the early New Testament church. Acts 20 shows us, 1 Corinthians 16, other passages in Acts show us the church coming together on what is now the Lord's Day, what is now the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the, the idea that we would still honor the Lord on a particular day of the week corporately, we should do it every day, 24-7. This, uh, this is not isolating our worship and our honor down to this one hour on Sunday morning, but this is saying part of what we do corporately is to, to worship together in honor of the Lord that, that pattern comes from out of the New Testament. And the New Testament fills in all of the, the activity that goes on on that first day of the week when it talks about how they broke bread together and how they brought their offerings in together and how they sang praises out loud and they read scripture out loud and they sat under the teaching of the word and they fellowshiped and they prayed and all of that activity that goes on. When the body comes together and does what we are doing, what we are striving to do on Sunday mornings as we seek to follow after that New Testament pattern. What's clear in Scripture is that Jesus Christ is not only Lord over the Sabbath, but he is Lord over our time. He is master over our time, and we are called to be stewards of our time for him. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says this so well when he describes how fleeting life is and says in prayer, Lord, teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help me to understand how, how precious the time is that you give me so that I may use it well. So our worship 
on Sunday is something we are called as believers to do. It is, it is what Hebrews 10 says. If you're looking for a mandate for what we do on Sunday mornings, it really is in Hebrews 10 where it says to not forsake the fellowshipping together, to not try to do Christianity by yourself, isolate it from the body, but rather to come together to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to worship him corporately as we do. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to do life corporately and to come together on the Lord's day to honor our King. So that's first. Second one is we need to acknowledge God's design for our time and our need for rest. We worship an infinite God who is all-powerful, who, as the scripture says, never sleeps nor slumbers, who never grows weary. We do, right? We are finite creatures We are limited in power. The older we get, the more we experience our weakness, the more we are reminded of how dependent we really are, how God has created us to be creatures who need him, who need life and breath and food and provision from God, who need to rest in him. And that pattern ultimately lies behind the fourth commandment, and it is God's divine design that is his gracious gift of rest to his people. We saw it in Exodus 16 and and then the command in Exodus 20. Those are reminders in those contexts of God's provision for his people. Think of the whole manna example that, that, that institutes all of this. It is God's people needing food. And it is God saying, this is what you'll do. You'll go out and you'll gather. You will work to gather it. I will provide it, though. And when it comes to that seventh day, you will rest in my provision. You will trust in my sufficient care for you. New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it it speaks of believers being required, expected to work. That, That if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. That we are called to be providers and not be lazy about our, our discipline, that we are to be responsible and good stewards with our time, and we are to work and 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 not shirk our responsibilities. But The principle underlying the Sabbath reminds us that having worked, having served as unto the Lord, having done our jobs faithfully as in serving Christ, there is also a place for us to rest and to trust in God's provision and to be satisfied with what God provides. Where we we go against the principle behind this, it's when, when we become compelled that we must get more, we must earn more, we must do more, we must keep working, we must out-compete the, the, the other colleague at work, we must show them up, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. And, and, and what lies behind all this is God saying, rest and rely on me. That's why some of the Israelites still went out on that seventh day, still felt like, ah, oh, we got to go out and still get some manna, and they got punished for it. And God said, Trust me, I've told you, you work faithfully, use your gifts, use the abilities, use the strength I give you, work faithfully, but then just trust me and know that I know your needs and I will provide for you and it's okay to rest. We must. We, we know what our, our personalities and our productivity get like the longer we go without sleep, or at least we know how those close to us get, right? When they go without sleep, well, we're, we're the same. We get irritated. We, we get short, we get less productive. God in his 
creative, infinite wisdom has made us to be that way, to remind us that he has called us to need rest and to trust in the God who never sleeps and who doesn't rest. Third application, and I'll end with this. This one comes out of Hebrews chapter 4, and, and I'll encourage you, I'll, I'll read a couple of verses, but I'd encourage you to take some time and look at Hebrews chapter 4 as you're thinking about this topic. Most of the references to the Sabbath in the New Testament are descriptive. They are talking about a, a, on this day, on this Sabbath, this happened. But here in Hebrews 4, the writer actually picks up on the theme of the Sabbath and rest, and he's teaching a critical truth. If you look back at chapter 3, he's just gotten done giving warnings. Warnings that went back to the same Israelites we've been reading about in Exodus 20. In Exodus 3, he's talking about how the law was given through Moses, how the people who came out of Egypt were supposed to go into the promised land. They were supposed to find rest in the land. And instead, he points out in Hebrews 3, they didn't enter that land because of what? Unbelief. And he says it at the end of Hebrews chapter 3, that they did not enter into that rest because of their unbelief. They didn't trust God about him bringing them into this land, and they disobeyed. And so a generation now wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. They do not cease from their work of wandering until the point that they die. They spend 40 years, if you will, laboring to try to get to that place that they are not going to get to because they disbelieved God's promise. And so Hebrews 4 comes along and says, don't be like that. Believe in God and find rest in him. And so Hebrews 4.3 says that we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed have found rest. The point he's drawing, the, the theological point he's drawing, is that we now rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of our efforts to try to earn God's approval works uh, efforts that we think somehow are deeds of righteousness. Ultimately, what he calls us to is to cease from those and rest in the finished work of Christ. Jesus has accomplished it on the cross. He did the work. He paid the debt. He rose again victorious. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, we who now by faith are trusting in Christ, we have entered into that rest. We are presently enjoying that condition being at rest before God because we have been delivered by the work of Jesus Christ. And we are, we are ceased, ceasing from any effort to try to earn his blessing or try to achieve righteousness because of what Jesus has done. Through the gospel, we have been brought to that place of resting our faith fully in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have ceased trying to do what we can't do. And that is earn God's approval. And we are resting in what Christ has done for us. But he doesn't stop there. Later on in Hebrews, in verse 9, he adds, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I think Hebrews 4 is, is showing us both that already and not yet sense of this rest. There is the sense in which believing in Jesus Christ, you and I are resting in the gospel, and that is where our hope lies. But he says that there is still a Sabbath rest for God's people. And I want to suggest to you that this is echoing right back to God at creation, in Genesis chapter 2, that there is a consummation to this whole rest that we are still looking forward to that is a reminder of what God said at the end of Genesis chapter 1, right? Right before it describes God entering rest from creation, he looked at his creation at the end of Genesis 1, and how did he describe creation? Very good, yeah. He said it was all 
very good. And then what happened? It was marred by sin. God's creation is marred by man's sin. But there is before us as believers a Sabbath rest when the temptation for sin and the disease and the fallout and the consequences of sin will all be behind us and we will find eternal rest in the presence of our Lord. And so when he says there is a Sabbath rest for God's people, we are looking forward to what we only got a glimpse of in Genesis 2 when God said it's all very good and he ceased from his work of creation. And now we eagerly look forward to that new creation. We were at a, Rob and I were at a conference this week, uh, a counseling conference on the subject of suffering. And one of the guys made a statement. It's one of those things that you hear just sort of sticks with you. And he was talking about sickness and struggles. And he said, and someday, shortly after my last sin, I will enter the presence of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thought, what a profound but simple thought. And he was capturing the fact that we still struggle we're still weighed down by temptation. We still yield to temptation. We still fight and we battle the flesh with sin. And one day there is a, a Sabbath rest coming when the deceitfulness of sin, and the temptation of evil, and, and all of the illness and disease and death and consequences and fallout of that will all be gone. And we will rest in the presence of our great God, in the presence of our King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being an infinitely wise and powerful God, for being one who, by speaking, could bring this remarkable universe that we are a part of, bring it into existence by simply speaking it into being. Your power, your omniscience, your no, no weaknesses, no need of sleep reminds us of, of how frail we are. We are finite creatures who need rest, who need refreshment. Lord, thank you that you, you are the gracious provider, that it is one of your gifts to mankind to give us this gift of rest. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that as we enter into a new week with the demands of the week and all of the entries that are already on our calendars for this week, help us by your spirit to rest in you, to seek those opportunities to, to worship you through all of the activity, to draw away and, and be alone with you, to enjoy the, the gift of quiet and rest in your presence. Father, if there are any here this morning who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, who are anxiously unsure of what would happen if they were to die today and wondering if they've somehow done enough to please you, I pray that today they would see that it is only by the finished work of the Savior Jesus Christ, the sinless one who gave himself on the cross, that there can be rest. And that in Christ that they would enjoy peace and forgiveness, the ability to rest in you. Help us, Father, to, as your children, to not be anxious about these things. I, I know, Father, there are some here as we are walking through this who, who are pushed 
to the limits by their jobs or by family responsibilities or raising children or whatever it might be. And Lord, I pray that, that what we've looked at this morning would not come down as a harsh statement of judgment, but would be a measure of your grace, that you are a sufficient provider, and that you urge us to rest in you and find peace in you. We pray that for those who are weary, that you would be their strength, that you would uphold them, that you would pour out your grace on them. And Father, may we be a people who, as the Israelites were called to live distinctively in the midst of their culture by setting apart this day, may we be a people who, in all that we do, live distinctively as people who belong to the King Jesus Christ, resting fully in him. In his name we pray. Amen.